0: So this morning, uh, we'll be picking up in Luke chapter 19, but I wanted us to think a moment about about Jesus, who is this humble king, uh, that Jesus came into the world in a humble setting, right? He's uh, born in a barn, essentially, laid in a manger, and it would not seem as though he was in charge or in authority or he was in power in that moment, but Jesus was, in fact, truly is king. He's king over all the earth, that in his ministry on this earth, he came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, He came sharing wisdom by teaching through parables what God's kingdom was like and how we should live in light of that truth, that Jesus is this great and mighty king. And we're gonna read about uh, someone receiving a kingdom today in one of Jesus' parables. And when we think about kings, our, the track record of kings and humans in authority probably doesn't give us a lot of confidence. It probably makes us feel like, I kinda don't like the idea of a king. But I assure you that Jesus is a king who is worthy of following and pursuing. Let's pick up in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Thanks for helping out today, Noah. Uh, This is what it says. He's ending this passage. We might revisit this passage later, but he ends this passage, this moment, and he says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. All right, so this was uh, one way that Jesus summarized the mission for which he came to the earth. He came to seek and and to save the lost. So he wasn't out hunting down the lost to punish them or to bring judgment against them, but to redeem and restore them. That's what Jesus did. And we might hit the rest of that some other day in this series. But verse 11, I figured I had to say that verse 10 because it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, all right? The hope of the people surrounding Jesus, the hope of their community was that there would be a king that would overthrow the Roman Empire and restore unto them this kingdom, this nation of Israel that they perhaps remember. They look back on kings of old who were flawed and broken, but they're like, Well, remember maybe when David was king or Solomon was king? Those were the good old days. And even those kings were screwed up, like big time screwed up. But that was the best that they could hope for. And this is the thing that they're thinking of. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And unfortunately for them, uh, the soon aspect that they were kind of thinking like, oh, it's going to happen right now, wasn't going to happen at least in the way that they were desiring. And so Jesus tells this parable, verse 12, he says, uh, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And Jesus, I'm going to suggest, in some ways is represented by this nobleman who's about to receive this kingdom and return, but that return would be sometime. It's not going to be as soon as they would like or as soon as maybe even we would like, but that does not mean that the response to this noble king uh, should be any different, that the wise and good and beneficial thing for you and I is to still seek and pursue the will of our King Jesus. All right, and so verse 13, this nobleman who's about to leave to receive this kingdom, he calls ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minas. All right, and so these were a coin. Uh, From what I've gathered, it's kind of like a hundred days' worth of money or food. All right, something like that. All right, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. And so he's giving responsibility and authority to those servants Uh, and he's leaving to receive a kingdom, and he's going to come back in some time. Now, this is similar to another parable that Jesus tells elsewhere, but one thing that's interesting about this one is every servant received the same amount. Every person received and was responsible for the same beginning amount. And now it's kind of like bouncing back and forth between these two stories. So this king, this nobleman, is about to receive this kingdom, And as he's leaving, it says, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And as we find out more about the man in the parable, I think they may be justified in their claim, but notice it nonetheless is pointing to the human heart, the response to the king over all the earth that oftentimes we don't want a king to reign over us. We would much rather choose to rule ourselves. All right, so verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. All right? So he's not giving him more money. He's now giving him more responsibility and authority, in fact, perhaps in that kingdom that he had just received. Verse 18, the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So here's a servant who didn't put it to use, who didn't do business as he was commanded. Uh, He'd wasted the time and the resource that his master had entrusted to him. Verse 21, and he explains why. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And this nobleman, who appears to not be very noble, responds to him. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected the interest. All right, so this is an interesting story, and it's, it's still going to get crazier. Here we go, Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas, right? Like, they're like, this this isn't fair. Why should that guy get it? This guy, right, like, this doesn't make sense to them. But now Jesus, I think in this moment, it's hard to tell whether Jesus is saying this or if it's this nobleman. He says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, this one's definitely from the perspective of that severe nobleman. He says, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So that definitely ends on a heavy note, Uh, but we'll get there. Don't you worry. Uh, The first thing that I think Jesus wants us to be mindful of when hearing this parable, is this idea of stewardship. That the servants in the story, in many ways, I think, represent us. And this idea of stewardship is that we've been given responsibility of something that we don't own. We are managing something that belongs to someone else. That this is not our stuff. And we don't have authority to to use it as we will. And as a result, like, we should honor our noble man with what we have. Uh, We have responsibility to use what has been entrusted to us and use it as unto the Lord, all right? That it, uh, in fact, in the Bible, in the New Testament, even it says that we are not our own, that our bodies do not even belong to us, that our wealth is not meant to be worshiped but is used to love and serve God and, and to serve and care for others. In fact, every breath that we have been given is not ours. It's been granted to us. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, in one of his documented sermons that we have, it's, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by men nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything now we do serve god but it's not because he really needs to like borrow something from us or he's in desperate need for something from us he co-labors with us because he loves us right it's not because he's in desperate need from us right so he is not ser- uh, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so as a result, it is false to say, it's my money, I can do what I want with it. Or it's my body, I can do what I want with it. Or it's my life, I can do what I want with it. Because Jesus is worthy of all of it. And it's not because he's severe and it's not because he's taking something that doesn't belong to him, but be mindful of the kind of humble, good, and gracious king that we serve, that he became poor, that we could become rich. That when he was granted a body on this earth, he said, it is to do your will, O Lord. And he surrendered his body to be broken, that ours could be made whole. And when he was given life on this earth, he gave up his life so that you and I could be brought back to life, all right? Jesus surrendered these things because he loves us. That's the kind of good and noble king that he is. So he's not trying to take from us. He's trying to bless us. So what about this part of the, the parable where he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now certainly there is, <coughs> as worded by Jesus elsewhere, a day of judgment, a day of justice when God will truly make all things right and bring into account the evil of this world, that any sin that has not experienced forgiveness because of what he's done will be brought to judgment. But I don't want you to read this passage thinking that that is somehow the heart and the mind of God, because even in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but instead He he rather would have them repent and experience life. He is this just God, a righteous judge to whom we can entrust our own lives when we experience injustice on this earth. There will be a penalty for sin, but, but God's heart, God's desire for humanity is that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so when we read a passage like that, I need you to understand, Jesus is not accurately conveying the heart of God in that moment. And I realize I've got a little bit of work for myself to fully justify that claim Here, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is using a negative example in the Scriptures, in his parables, to teach us something that is true. Okay? And he's done this before. We've seen him do this before. We've seen Jesus use a parable about this unjust judge who reluctantly brings justice to a widow only after she repeatedly kind of nags him for it. But God himself is not an unjust judge. God is not reluctant to answer your prayers, right? God delights in hearing his children come to him and spend time with him, all right? We've seen Jesus give the parable about an unjust manager who, upon hearing that he's going to lose his job, he goes around the community and he cuts the debts of the community in half or in varying degrees that are owed to his master, all right? And, and then as a result, that unjust manager is going to be cared for by all these new friends he's made. All right? Jesus gives this negative example. He's not suggesting it's right to exploit someone or to embezzle money or to, to steal. Right? Jesus at times has used negative examples to make a positive point. He is in no way commending evil behavior. He is, however, making a point. Okay? So, God, I want to suggest, is not a severe king. Because Jesus also, when he teaches, uses this phrase, how much more. Jesus often, when presenting a parable, he'll he'll use an extreme to make us consider, what would I do in that moment, in that situation? All right, what would my hope be in that moment, in that situation? And then he says, how much more? How much more, right? And this is some examples for us to consider. Uh, Luke 11:13, he says, "If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him." Or Matthew 12:12, 12, 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath that Jesus uses an extreme example of like surely you would care for your sheep if it fell in a well, then yes, you can also care for a person who's more valuable than that. Okay? And that we've seen Jesus make this case over and over again where he's like, listen, God, yes, cares for and feeds the ravens of how much more value are you than they? And so this is, I think, what Jesus is doing with this parable about this nobleman receiving a kingdom who's this severe man. The wise response for this servant to do, and I think I've got a slide for that, Noah, the wise thing for this servant who had been given a mina uh, to do would have been to respect this severe Lord. But our response is how much more should we honor, respect, obey, and steward well for our good noblemen, our good master, our good Lord. Right? If the servant should have obeyed this master out of fear, how much more should we obey the Lord out of love because of what he's already done for us? All right? I think that's the point that Jesus is making. And I realize we still might, like the people in the story, resist the idea of having a king because kings don't have a good track record. But we can't define what a king is on the basis of how humanity has acted in that position. Because what's interesting is before the nation of Israel ever had a king, 400 years before they had a king, God had already established what the the commands were for that king. That a king in God's eyes was not someone who had this uh, unparalleled authority. He was someone who was still submitted to, to the king of kings, all right? He still was being held accountable, right? You could think about like even the quote-unquote good kings in Israel or, uh, wow, my mind just went blank. Israel and, nope, I don't remember when the kingdom was split. Start with a J. Judah, there we go. Wow, thank you, thank you. All right, trivia for the day, right? Neither of the kings of either kingdom were really all that admirable. They were pretty screwed up. But 400 years before they ever came onto the earth to reign, God had already, through Moses, given instruction for what it would look like when you have a king. Check out Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. So let's rewind way back in the Bible, fifth book of the Bible. It says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, all right, so once again, I point out the context is he's just delivered them from slavery in Egypt and he's gifted them the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. This is what he says. And you possess it and dwell, it, dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother, only, and then he has some restrictions for the king, okay? And what's cool about this is he wrote it 400 years before they were kings, so like they couldn't change the rules after the fact, okay? He says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He says, if the king commands you to go back to Egypt, you say no, right? Because our God delivered us from slavery in Egypt, and we're not going back to slavery. All right? He then continues. "Uh, He must and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And think about it, even like the first kings that come on to the stage of Israel's history fail to do these things, like they are acquiring, even David had multiple wives, but it was against God's command, all right? And then his sons after him go even further into the extreme, all right? But this is not the way that God saw a kingdom. This is not what it was meant to look like. We serve a God who gives, not a God who seeks to take. But then he does have some positive commands for the king, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, all right, this is the kind of king that God desired. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So he's like, your king needs to be a Bible nerd, right? He needs to literally copy the Bible by hand. Like, I need to make sure this king knows what God's heart and God's law is. All right? He says, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Okay? Because humanity, we have the tendency to fall away from truth and believe a lie. All right? So he's like, write your own copy of the Bible and read it every day. That's the only way you're going to keep the heart of a king pure. All right? He says this, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and, this, and these statutes and doing them and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so what's interesting is God's perception of a king is someone who has full respect and, and understanding of who God is, that they're not in charge, that they're not to use their authority and abuse their authority to build a kingdom for themselves, and that they're not to think of themselves as being over anyone in that nation, right? They're not to esteem themselves above their brothers and sisters, right? That, that, that they have a correct perception of reality, that the reason that God has made them king wasn't for them, and what's interesting is we, as humans, in b- both in biblical history and in our own lives, God wants to be that king. God wants to be our king, and we often reject him. We doubt God's goodness, believing the lie from the garden that God is somehow holding back something good from us, right? We doubt his goodness, right? We think that he's somehow keeping blessings from us when that's not his heart. And as a result, we reject a king. Fast forward to the days of Samuel 1, Samuel 8, and Samuel, right, this is after the days of the judges, and God has already brought the nation of Israel into the land, and, and they've, they've got their cities and their tribes, and everything set up, and there are now judges in the land, and Samuel himself is a prophet of God speaking on his behalf, trying to draw the people back to the God who loves them. When Samuel became old, he had made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. All right, and so out of brokenness, the people respond and think they've got a better way. Now, what those sons were doing needed to be corrected and judgment would have been brought against them in the long run. But this is what happened. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, right? Essentially like, dad, my friend's all have a cell phone? Like, can't I have a cell phone too? Is, is kind of like the argument. They're like, all of these surrounding nations have kings. Why can't we have a king, right? Why do we have to have God as our king? We don't like that idea. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us, a, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Right? One of the most terrifying things that could ever happen is when God says yes to a prayer that isn't good for you. Right? That's like a terrifying idea when God would actually be like, you know what? Just give them them what they want. It's terrifying. All right? And so when he asked for the king, like he says, uh, verse 7, then the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. Right, God's basically saying, like, I delivered them from Egypt, and that same day they were already rejecting me. And they've done that for over 400 years. And they're still doing it, right? That they have rejected God as king. This is the track record that we have as humanity, and I understand we might not like the idea of having a king over us okay? And so they are also doing to you. Verse 9, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And verse 10, now Samuel goes to them and tells them what this king would be like. So think about this. God knew what they would do. God wrote about it 400 years before they did, and when they're in the midst of making that choice, he's still sending a prophet to them to warn them about their foolishness. All right? This is this is the wisdom of God, but we still reject that wisdom. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters uh, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. So what's interesting here is that when we choose a king for ourselves. When we submit ourselves to something that we think will serve us better, it will take from us. It will rob us of the very things that God desires to bless us with. Six times the word take shows up in that passage. But when we compare that to the kind of king God was for his people, he's the one that delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. He was the one that was giving them the land. He was the one that was blessing their harvests and their generations. And as they were faithful to him, he would bless them for all generations. Like, this is the kind of God that we serve, a good and loving and generous God that we serve, and yet we reject him. This is the track rec- record that we have as humanity, and I realize it takes a lot to convince any of us that submitting to God is a good idea because we'd rather be in charge of our own lives. But the Jesus we serve is generous. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it says, "'What then shall we say to these things? "'If God is for us, who can be against us? "'He who did not spare His own Son, "'but gave Him up for us all,' How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The God we serve is generous. The God we serve loves us, right? He seeks after us. In Romans 6, uh, chapter 6, so skip a verse there, Noah. uh, What's interesting is Jesus said in his own words, we become slaves to that which we obey that when we choose to seek after something, even our own desires, our own deceitful desires, it can enslave us. But that's not what God desires for us. In Romans 6, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free, from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Alright, he desires that we would walk in freedom. Romans 8, verse 15: for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. Just as the kings that God foresaw for the nation of Israel should never have brought the people back to Egypt, when God delivers us, He set us free from slavery, and He does not want us to return to slavery. He does not want us to go back to a life as slaves of sin. Right? He wants to see us delivered to walk free, to be reigning as sons and daughters. He continues, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so what's interesting is when it comes to God's kingdom, yes, Jesus reigns. He is in charge. But He is interested in making us joint heirs with him in that kingdom. Proverbs 29.2, the wisdom written down by Solomon, one of these kings that failed to live up to God's standard, he said this, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. All right, when there is a good and wise and holy king, all right, it is for the blessing and flourishing of the people. All right, that when we submit ourselves to a good king, it produces joy in us and rejoicing in us. Take a look at Luke 19, back to the same chapter we started with. There's this moment where Jesus, as a humble king, rides a donkey into Jerusalem a week before He's about to be crucified. And it says, And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as He was drawing near. Already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, Jesus received worship as king. Jesus recognized that if humanity did not praise him, the rest of creation would. That Jesus is this good and wise king who who brings righteousness for us, who blesses us. In Matthew 21, the rendition of the same exact account, one of the phrases the crowd says in verse 9 is, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is referred to as Son of David. This is a prophetic fulfillment because David, the, the boy who slew Goliath and became king, who was a man after God's own heart and sang psalms unto the Lord even though he stumbled and sinned and needed a friend in prophet the prophet Nathan to rebuke him and bring him back to repentance. Right? God promised that through David the messianic line would continue. The means for which humanity would experience forgiveness would come through his line. And Jesus is a descendant of David. And the people in the time of Jesus recognized and called him son of David, that he was, in fact, the Christ. That's what is being proclaimed here, that Jesus is a good and wise king. Let's check out Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That this is God's perception of what the right kind of king looks like. A good and wise king, not someone who's exploiting others for their own gain, but someone who is good and wise and righteous and brings justice to their people. And verse 6, check this out. This is incredible in his days, Judah will be saved. There's Judah. I should have known that one, right? And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In Hebrew, this is Jehovah Sidkenyu. Let's see if I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Jehovah Sidkenyu, right? Which is the Lord is our righteousness. And this is the crazy idea that through what this king does, we can be made right. That we sinners, the sinners that Jesus seeks to save, we can be brought to righteousness. That our sins can be exchanged, our sins which were as scarlet can be made white as snow. That, that we can be made right in the eyes of God. That in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. And this is the King that was proclaimed. This is the King Jesus is. And when he gets into the city, he experiences beatings. He's crowned in a mocking manner with a crown of thorns. A purple robe is placed upon him, and they, they call him King of the Jews. And he's lifted up on a cross publicly. And what's interesting about that moment, it seems like it's shame. It seems like it is defeat. But it is, in fact, his coronation ceremony As he is lifted up and reigning as king over all the earth and victory is demonstrated through his resurrection. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Right, He's representing us. He's an advocate on our behalf that he's made access to the Father through him, that we can be made righteous through him alone. And in a moment that looked like the defeat of God's plan was in fact, the means through which we would be saved. I've got a short video we're going to play that is not yet a worship song, and then we're going to go right into worship after that. Check this out.
1: He's enduringly strong, He's entirely sincere, He's eternally steadfast, He's immortally graceful, He's imperially powerful. He the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well spring of wisdom. He's a doorway way of deliverance. He's a pathway of Peace, he's a roadway of righteousness, he's a highway of holiness, he's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his mercy is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his race is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and a yoke is. And his burden is light I wish I could describe him But you. he's indescribable He's incomprehensible He's invincible He's irresistible Well, you can't get him out of your mind You see, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him And you can't live without him Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him But they found out they couldn't stop him Silence couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him.